podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back, fight fans, to the darker side of the after show. Myself, Sean Bastow, joined by the author of President of Pandemonium, the Mad World of Ikebea Bucci, Luke G. Williams. Luke, thank you so much for coming on to speak to us uh, about your book and about Ikebea Bucci. Thank you so much, Sean. A pleasure to be on. I really enjoyed the episode you did about Ike. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, to chatting about the book and, and about him. Um, and it is a pretty crazy story, and I think you did it real justice with, with your with your pod. It was really enjoyable, mate. Well done. Thank you so much. Uh, obviously, your book was a, a very a very good source material for us to be able to fill in some of the gaps of of, of Ike's story that may that weren't really always available to, to, to source from online. We know there's many sources, there's many ways of getting uh, information to, to talk about these stories, but sometimes it takes the hard work of people like yourself to be able to get the nitty-gritty details uh, of what truly represents a, a certain character or an individual. And I suppose my first question really was, uh, it's all about why why Ike? Why, why did Ike's story, or wanting to know about Ike's story, what, what was it that sort of drew you to him? Yeah, so I've, I was always a very big fan of him as a boxer. So I remember back in 1997, um, so I would have been about 20, I guess, um, and I was a massive boxing fan. I, I bought Boxing News, Boxing Monthly, Ring Magazine, and all of these. Uh, and I actually, my way into Ike was through David Tua because Tua was like this fast-rising prospect. I think he was on the cover of Boxing Monthly one month. Um, you know, he was, he, he was being labeled the new Tyson, the new Dempsey. He'd had all these quick knockouts, spectacular victories, you know, 19 second destruction of John Ruiz. Um, and then all of a sudden I heard that he'd lost and he'd lost to this guy I'd absolutely never heard of, even though I was a boxing fan, Ike Bayabuchi. And I thought, what on earth has happened here? Who is this guy? What happened in this fight? I don't think it was on, um, UK TV even. Um, and then I read report in boxing news saying that it had set the record for CompuBox. It had, there were more punches thrown than in the thriller in Manila, which at the time was sort of my favorite heavyweight fight. So I thought I've got to see this fight and see what this Ike Bayabuchi is about. Um, and they used to have these classified ads in, in the back of these boxing magazines where you could order VHS tapes of like fights from America, some totally illegal <laughs> pirated copy or whatever it might be. So with a friend, we, we ordered, uh, a Bucci tour, watched the fight, and I was just blown away by his performance, by how exciting the fight was. And then ever since then, I sort of kept an eye on, on, on his career and the way that it all fell apart, then got gathered back together and then all fell apart again. So he was always somebody that intrigued me and I thought had a lot of potential. And I was always quite sad about the, you know, the, way, the way things ended up and I wanted to know more, more, more details about it. When did you first become aware of the issues that he was involved in outside of the ring? Was it at the time when you were following him or was it more so uh, in retrospect when you started to get more involved in wanting to put something together like this? Yeah, it was, it was at the time. So it was just a few months after the tour fight. I, I can't remember exactly where I read it. Maybe it was in Ring Magazine that he'd then been arrested and, and I thought, oh no, you know, this guy who's just emerged, suddenly it looked like it was all over for him. There was the incident, 
you know, which which you which I talk about in the book and which you went through in the podcast where he he had the the son of his estranged girlfriend in the car and he smashed into the pillar. And I thought, well, that's it. He's he's finished. You know, it's not, there's no coming back from that. He's going to be in prison forever. But obviously, he, his team managed to get him out. Uh, managed to sort of argue that he wasn't of sound mind. It was a suicide attempt. Put his career back together again. And then there was the Chris Bird fight. And again, Chris Bird was somebody I was following with interest. And nobody wanted to fight Chris Bird. But Ike took him on. Absolutely demolished him. That was another fight that I watched. And, and then I thought, right, he's back on track. Put these problems behind him. And then again, so it was all, it was all at the time through the, through the boxing media that I was learning about this. But obviously, I, only, you know, I wanted to go behind the headlines when I eventually got to the point years later of researching the book. But the broad outline of the story was something that I followed as it happened uh, back in the late 90s. So where did the idea for the actual book come about? So back when he was released, so when are we talking about now? Back end of 2015, was this? Or was it, I think it was 2015 um, into 2016. At the time, I was uh, writing for Boxing Monthly magazine myself. Um, and I'd seen some murmurs online that he was maybe going to be released and, and it sort of rekindled my interest in the whole story. So I followed up. I did a couple of stories on that. Um, I was one of the earliest people to break the news of the fact that he had been released and when he was actually free. Um, did a lot of digging around online and on Facebook and managed to set up an interview with him for Boxing Monthly by telephone, uh, February 2016. Spoke to him in quite a lot of detail I was having a few emails back and forth with him, put a feature together. Uh, by the time the feature was ready to roll, he'd been rearrested again. Um, the feature was published on the website, um, but I'd done so much research around that time. I started thinking to myself, look, this is an amazing story. And although the story's not at an end yet, because we didn't know exactly what was going to happen, I just carried on digging, found legal papers, all sorts of other information. And just began thinking, you know, this would make a fascinating book. It's an untold story. A lot of the details that I discovered hadn't been, hadn't filtered their way into the mainstream media or people didn't know about some of the details, things to do with his family background, his mother, his father, the strong man, and all of these were things that hadn't really got any media attention or had only been mentioned in passing. And I found all of this information, but I didn't really know where to go with it because he's quite a niche character. Uh, boxing itself is quite a niche sport in many ways. And, you know, main big publishers aren't really going to be interested in that. But then Hamilcar, brilliant boxing publisher, they came along with this true crime series. Uh, my friend Paul Zanon uh, did the Johnny Tapia book in that series. And I remember receiving it through the post. I think Paul sent me a copy and just reading it and thinking, this is the perfect format for to tell the story of Aki Bayabuchi. You know, it's, it's a quite a concise book. Um, and it's that sort of pulp paperback, true crime style. And I just thought this is the perfect format because I've been thinking I wouldn't get a publisher. No one would be interested. And I thought it completely fits with that series. And uh, Paul put in a word for me very kindly and yeah, just took it from there. So, so that's how it all came about. So going back to the interview, uh, very interesting. Obviously you got the opportunity to speak to him, you know, all these years after his boxing career seemingly ended. And one interesting line that you mentioned in the book is uh, when you addressed him by his Christian name and then he corrected you and asked him to refer to him as uh, Mr. Abayabuchi, which, as as we know now, is, is certainly part of that persona of uh, the president as as that he put himself mm. into. Um, just to, to sort of talk me through how, how that went, because I'm really interested to know, I'm really intrigued. You know, we, we only know so much about what's been portrayed about Ike in, 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 in your book and obviously very, various media sources around at the time. But 
given it from your perspective, you actually had the opportunity to speak to him over the phone. Uh, given everything that's been said about him, different stories that we've heard, that we've portrayed, what was it like speaking to him? How was he? What was, de- what was his demeanour? Um, he seemed surprisingly together. You know, he gets built up as this madman of boxing, this crazy figure. And he obviously he's been engaged in, in crazy behaviours and crazy episodes, but he seemed incredibly calm incredibly rational, pretty intelligent, a very formal man, um, as, as by the fact I had to address him as Mr. Abayabuchi. But that was the only moment there was any sort of tension, really, in, in the conversation. Very thoughtful man. Um, and his recall of, you know, the tour fight and the bird fight in particular was very crystal clear. And, you know, and they, they were quite a long time ago now, and I was maybe expecting with all of the mental health difficulties that he had, that maybe his memory would be a bit fuzzy. His recall seemed excellent. Um, so I was quite surprised, you know, he, he was not what I expected at all. I expected somebody quite awkward who would, you know, would, would, would bristle at me at certain times. And he didn't come across like that at all. Um, the formality though was the real, the real thing that struck me and subsequent emails that we had again, the, the style of writing he would use in the emails was incredibly formal. You know, almost like you know, writing a legal letter or, or, or something like that. And I know he's he's got some legal qualifications, you know, paralegal qualifications that he picked up, you know, while, while he's been in jail. Um, the one thing, sadly, that I didn't get a chance to quiz him on in detail were, were the were the incidents. Um, there was a comment he made that made it clear he didn't want to discuss them. And I was sort of thinking to myself, well, look, I'm going to try and build the relationship through email. Speak, we were due to speak some more times on the phone. I was going to get around to some of that stuff later on, sort of soften him up with the boxing stuff first, if yeah. you like, because I would have been fascinated to know if, if he would have answered those questions. But sadly, he was rearrested, so I never got the chance to, to, to go into that, that area of his life, and that would have been interesting to delve into and see how he reacted. That that's the part that I think intrigues a lot of us is the unknown aspects of it and and and, and obviously I, I said in in the after show that we did uh, only yesterday about him you know this there's a type of mental health there I'm no expert initially when putting the story together it felt like some sort of bipolar disorder but Lukey who does the after show with us he actually went and did a little bit of research uh, in the interim and he said there's a, a disorder called schizotypal uh, personality disorder which uh, is basically like he compared it to like a, a sort of a Willy Wonka style character who sort of puts themselves uh, a separate from who, who they are as an individual. And, and that's kind of what it felt like he was doing at certain points throughout his, his life and his career. Uh, but yet then when speaking to you and speaking to your sort of recollection of speaking to him a few years ago, it's like, he's very formal, he's very well educated, very intelligent. You probably wouldn't think that there was any sort of madness to him whatsoever. Uh, and there was obviously um, Bill Benton around as well, who who mentioned that he was ne- he was never a problem with him. You know, he never saw mm. or never felt like he saw this side of him. He was always quite adamant that a lot of these stories were exaggerated. And I suppose that's the next question for you: is like, given everything you've done for the book and and, and the time that you'd spent with him, do you feel like some of these stories may be a little bit over exaggerated? It's so hard to tell, isn't it? I mean, I think one of the things I tried to do with the book. I tried to speak to as many people as possible who'd known him or who'd met him or who'd dealt with him over the years. And in a way, I sort of wanted their stories to, to take precedence. I didn't really want to comment on what, what I thought was the truth or not. I mean, I have my, I have my views on, on what I think happened. 
Um, but I try to sort of step back from that. I almost want the reader to make their own conclusions or, or to sort of speculate themselves um, about that. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure some of the stories may well be exaggerated in some respects, but others, you know, there's multiple witnesses for them. There's, you know, the legal system, you know, thoroughly examined them. Um, and I think it's very interesting, the issue of, you know, what exactly was wrong with Ike? What, what was the, the mental disorder or mental illness that he was suffering from? Psychiatrists themselves have not been able to decide. You know, there were there've been frequent disagreements about whether he was even whether he was competent or not competent. You know, so there's not been any sort of psychiatric consensus that has ever been come has ever come to, to being about exactly what his issues were. And I think that that's part of the intrigue of him and part of the and part of the mystery, isn't it? You know, how did he exaggerate some of was he doing some of these things, you know, this whole president persona? Was was he doing that in a knowing way? as part of like this sort of grandiose personality he was attempting to cultivate or, or was it a symptom of, of, of real mental illness? We, we're never going to really know for sure, but, it, but it's fun to speculate and, and look at all of the different accounts and the conflicting accounts. And that's why when I finally spoke to Bill Benton, I, you know, I thought that was fascinating because he was a real advocate for, for Ike. And I wanted there to be a voice in the book that did advocate for Ike as well. I didn't want it to be a sort of stereotypical character or a character assassination or anything like that. I wanted as many different views as possible in the book. Yeah, and, and obviously that does come across, and that's exactly, you know, kind of trying to get people's opinions of, of people that were around him and that were able to experience certain incidents. And obviously you've got his, his trainer, Curtis Coates, you've got Cedric Kushner, uh, who was around him, who, who'd mentioned things. Lou DiBello, obviously, who played a sort of pivotal part of the book and, and many comments and, and stories from him about certain incidents that occurred. But one thing that compelled me more than anything was his mum, his, his mum and, and that mm. saying about the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and some of the stories that came up about his mum kind of made me feel like this was something that had been, you know, maybe her views were or her sort of beliefs were projected onto him growing up and it's kind of like he's then carried this on throughout his own life and, and then created his, his own persona, his own version of how things are. To me, it, it screamed a bad case of, of mental health that wasn't correctly mm. diagnosed and maybe the, the facilities weren't there to diagnose him at the time, but it kind of feels like this is where it had come from. He, he, he'd, he'd had these issues growing up. He then obviously lived with his mother, who, who it seemed quite evidently also suffered with, with a form of mental health before she, she passed mm. away. And then he's also quite evidently suffered from it as well in, in some way, shape or form. Mm. But nobody knows. Nobody knows like what it is and we don't even know whether or not, you know, there were any lasting effects from the fights that he were involved in. I know we mentioned the David Chua fight in our episode and, and uh, how much of a, a 12 round war that was and how we don't see these anymore. I know he was physically examined after it and yet there was no issues with his physical examination. But yet then obviously had fights after that and then there's, there's years that go by. Sometimes the, the these don't get detected. I know obviously Trish Dixon's done his brilliant book on this and yeah. it explains a lot in detail about this. But, but I started to, started to think whether or not there'll be any any sort of after effects of that and whether, whether he is suffering from any of that because nobody really knows now because I think this is a story that there is still there is still something left to tell on it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's bound to be another twist to come. Um, it seems, which doesn't quite get into the book because it's a development since, it seems that Ike is back in Nigeria now. Um, so, you know, his chances of making a comeback in the US ring would appear to be over. I don't think there's any way he'd get a visa back to America. But, you know, I, I've checked Boxtrek for the, like, the Nigerian 
boxing schedule because it would not surprise me, you know, to, to see him make some, some form of a comeback. Certainly from the way he was talking to me, he was adamant that there was, you know, unfinished business in, in boxing and that he saw it as his destiny to be heavyweight champion and he would not be content until he had, had at least got back in the ring again to see what he had left. So, yeah, I think you're right. Um, there may well be some more twists and turns to come and some more crazy stories to come and some more ups and downs. You know, with Ike, you never quite know what to expect. But at the moment, it seems like um, he's laying low. He's not really sort of come out and done any interviews or it's not clear whether he's a free man in Nigeria or still being processed in terms of going back into the country because he probably wouldn't have a passport anymore. So we wait. We will wait and see. But I'm sure there will be some twists and maybe a, a new chapter to be added in in later editions. So going back to his boxing career, I think there were a lot of lingering questions, a lot of uh, speculation about you know. Sh- I always say shoulda, woulda, coulda, and I always use that phrase because what what you know what should he have done, what could he have done, and and what would he have done with his boxing career, and 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 it leaves us sort of fantasizing about how he could have gone on. I think, obviously, in his last fight against Chris Bird, he beat an undefeated fighter who nobody wanted to fight at the time. And it's quite evident, if you look at what Chris Bird goes on to do after the loss to Abayabuchi, you know, that he was the real deal. So it makes you think, what what would Abayabuchi have done? You know, obviously, there was Evander Holyfield, Lennox Lewis, there, two fights in 99. Should he have not been involved in them incidents, surely he would have been lined up to fight one of them at some point over the course of the next 12 months after that. So around the 2000 mark, he, he probably would have had the chance to fight one of them. And it really does make me wonder what would have happened to him, you know, in them fights. Would he have got past... Them, them great fighters, them legendary fighters. Uh, I've, I'm sure you've thought about this many times yourself. I mean, what what do you take away from that? Thinking about it, do you think you know there was a legitimate threat to to these two guys? Um, I guess there's sort of two strands to my answer to this. I guess the first part of it is, in a sense, it it doesn't matter. It's all hypothetical, isn't it? You know, we, we, we'll never know. Um, and the woulda, shoulda, coulda thing, you know, runs through boxing. You know, runs through the generations. But by the same token, um, it's, it's fun to speculate. So I will speculate, even though in a way it's pointless in the grand scheme of things. But I think the big unanswered question with Ike is how would he have handled one of these sort of supersized, very, very tall heavyweights? You know, Chris Bird, quite a small man. You know, he, I think he fought in the Olympics at middleweight, if memory serves. Um, you know, a small heavyweight. David Tua, a very, very stocky, but also quite short heavyweight. Ike himself was only about 6'2", around 240. Um, Somebody like Lewis has got several inches of height and reach and some weight advantages. And we never really saw Ike in with a quality bigger man than him. And so I think that's the big unanswered question. Certainly, my view is that Ike at his best, keeping it together in the ring, I, I feel that Tyson and Holyfield would have been great fights for him because they're not, they wouldn't have towered over him. Um, you know, I think he's, he, had, he had as good a chin as Holyfield, better chin probably than Tyson. Um, and, I, and I could see him being victorious against either of those men around that, around that time. Lennox Lewis maybe would have been a bridge too far, but, but who's to tell? Because Lewis did have vulnerabilities. Um, Ike never really seemed hurt by Tua, who was a massive puncher, a massive puncher. You know, could Ike have taken Lewis's best shots and then kept firing back? You know, we'll, we'll never know. But I think that's the one 
big question mark is how would he have dealt with somebody significantly taller than him? Because he never, we never really saw him have to deal with a quality heavyweight like that. Yeah, I think like looking looking back on his uh, on, on his career, you think about like the, again the shoulda woulda coulda aspects of it, and and obviously people like to fantasize and romanticize about these types of things. Um, it's it's a shame that for us as as fans we we didn't get to see that. It's, it kind of feels like a bit of a wasted talent, and uh, there's so many things that happened outside of the ring, and there were so many you know compelling incidents that occurred, whether it be them ringing up to his room uh him putting the phone down and then them ringing back and asking to speak to the president to get his other persona out there to come down to the weigh-in uh from the meeting with the hbo execs and him stabbing a knife in the table the meeting with larry merchant and i'm just thinking wow there's, there's so many out of out of all of them including all the others that that you've that you spoke about in the book was the one particular that that sort of really struck a chord with you in 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 sort of not just a sort of a sadness way, but more so, you know, a wow, a wow factor to it. I think for me, the whole build-up to the Chris Bird fight, I just find fascinating because it was so chaotic. Uh, there was the incident with Ezra Sellers in sparring. By all accounts, that was basically the only sparring he did for the whole fight. There's the fact that everybody in the camp, apart from Bill Benton, thought he was going to lose. You had Mitch Winston, who worked for the... Um, CKP who'd like staked thousands of dollars on Bird because he thought there's no way I can win this fight. He's just in such chaos. He's in such a mess. You know, him marching outside the hotel like he's a soldier and Chris Bird just at like the hotel window thinking, you know, who is this guy? What is going on? Um, his whole refusing to get on the plane, you know, Mr. T style, you know, is he even going to show up at the fight? Before the fight, you know, the Snickers bar, you know, I'm not getting in the ring unless I get a Snickers bar. You know, just this absolute chaos surrounding this whole promotion. You know, they had standby fighters ready. You know, it just seemed, everything seemed set up for him just to self-destruct in the ring and, and fall apart because it looked like he had fallen apart. And yet and then when he gets in the ring, all of a sudden, you know, he seems like one of the most composed men out there. And I, that, for me, that contrast between the chaos in his personal life and the way that in the boxing ring, he could be so controlled, um, so effective and so calm, I just find it incredible. Because, you know, someone like Tyson, there was chaos outside and then there was chaos in the ring as well. But it's almost like once Ike got in the ring, this sort of sense of peace or calm would come over him. And he would, that performance against Bird was a, was a masterclass, the way he gradually closes the distance and then, and, then, and then took him out. So I think for me, yeah, the whole build up to the Bird fight, culminating in the Snickers bar, incident which is just so bizarre um i think for me that that's the highlight and and being able to recreate that build-up by speaking to so many different people that were there and that were involved in it that, that was a real highlight for, for me i think in writing the book when, when we did the episode ourselves and we put together the you know the sort of chronological timeline of how things went for him i got this sort of impressions that the people that were around at the beginning of his career uh, the people that may have had all ulterior motives about where they wanted him to go and what they wanted to achieve out of uh, being a part of his career. It kind of felt like towards the end, because of these different types of behaviours that he was displaying, that uh, not only were they ignoring them, but they, they were sort of getting fed up of them to the point where uh, when things started to happen outside of the ring and, and there were incidents outside of the ring that were causing him to, to be arrested, 
it, they were starting to really distance themselves, distance themselves from him really, really quickly. Like, you know, we've not really got this affiliation with him, even though we've promoted him throughout his whole career or we've been a part of his career for so long. It kind of felt like the only person, you know, to me that that kind of stuck by him no matter what, uh, even though he was quite distant towards the end, was, was his trainer, Curtis Coates. It kind of felt like Curtis always had this love and affection for him, but knew there was always something about him that, that was... That was uh, an element of, of of unknown that you had to try and tame and control throughout the course of his career, but to me it felt like everybody else around him uh, towards the end were just wanting to sort of really distance themselves because they realised actually you know this guy's going down one road and it's not the road that is going to lead to the heavyweight championship or the money that comes with that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that, and I mean, I think Bird from memory, I think it's in the book. I think Bird had even signed with Kushner by then. And I think Kushner had just sort of thought, well, you know, it's a chance to cash out. would be a good win for Bird. Because I think he thought that, that, that Bird would win. So he was almost like serving Ike up as a, as a good name for, to build Chris Bird's career. Um, and, yeah, Curtis, I, you know, he's somebody I would have loved to speak to. Um, unfortunately, he was very unwell the last few years of his life. He passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and when I did reach out to try and speak to him, he was unfortunately not in any condition um, I think he had some some form possibly of dementia or, or Alzheimer's. He was in no condition to be able to talk to me, which was which was very sad. And I think, you know, Curtis is a bit of an unsung hero in, in the whole story because when you look at what he achieved, you know, taking this raw guy who came over from Nigeria to Texas, who'd had, I think, about 30 amateur fights in Nigeria and started boxing quite late, you know, 18 or 19, you know, the sort of age where Deontay Wilder took up boxing and, you know, he's very technically flawed. You know, look at the way that Curtis managed to instill, you know, excellent footwork, excellent head movement, brilliant fundamentals in Ike in a very short period of time. You know, he took Ike from this novice to someone who was on the verge of the heavyweight championship. And, and that's a real testament to, to the ability and the, um, and, the, and the skill of Curtis Cokes. And when I spoke to Ike, Ike was incredibly complimentary still about Curtis. In fact, I think... I think he called him a genius um, of coaching and he, he was very grateful for everything Curtis had done. And, and it broke Curtis's heart. I think that's what um, Richard Lord, the son, the son of his own promoter who promoted one of Ike's fights said, said to me that it seemed, you know, whenever anyone would, would mention Ike, Curtis would just sort of shake his head sadly and not really say anything. And it, it, I think it, yeah, I think it broke his heart because I think he saw that as his, his opportunity um, to, to get the heavyweight championship of the world, which is, it's the, it's the dream for, for everyone who's involved in boxing, isn't it? There's no bigger prize than that. So there's a little bit of a conversation that we haven't had yet, elements of it that I've alluded to throughout the course of uh, this interview. And it's it's the incidents, the actual incidents that led to his downfall, the incidents uh, most infamously, July 22nd, 1999, at the Mirage Hotel, the, the, the supposed obviously meeting with Don King, uh, and then the incident involving women. Now, the the again the interpretation I got from these incidents that occurred was it, it kind of felt like you know he'd um, he'd had a certain he'd had a certain mindset towards women uh, that had been around him and and obviously I can't speak for him because uh, he's not here to defend himself mm. to to tell me otherwise but that was my interpretation of, of reading through the police reports the incidents that occurred reading through the stuff that you'd put together it kind of felt like he, he, he you know barring his mother it kind of felt like everyone else around him that was a female just 
didn't really mean much to him. It's like he was very sort of demeaning towards the opposite sex. And, you know, he, he, he in a way, he was objectifying uh, women quite a lot because he was involved in obviously yeah. getting prostitutes, uh, the the incident involving the woman in, in, in the mirage in, in the morning. When you did, when you put that together, when you started to do the book and you started to write about all that, again, like, what, what was your sort of, what was your take on it um, in terms of like what you'd put together, the, the, the reports that you'd received, the information that you'd got and, you know, you start to put a picture together. What was that picture in your mind? Um, it's very difficult again to say, I mean, because again, there's two sides to it, to it here. You know, Ike and his family claim he was set up, things were exaggerated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot of the comments that we know um, or that have been reported by Ike concerning his attitude to women came with the interview he did with Tim Graham, who I think was working for ESPN at the time. Um, and obviously, you know, terrible things that Ike says in that interview. Ike later contested whether the, whether the interview was accurate. Um, I reached out to Tim um, to, to, to speak to for the book, and he he was very civil, but basically said, I don't really want to go back into the world of Ike Bayabuchi, it's too dark. So, um, look, I don't doubt his reporting. He's a respected reporter. Um, so I would definitely lean more on the side that that, that Ike was was guilty of what of what he did and had and had these attitudes. Too many other people, I think, commented on those attitudes of sort of inherent sexism for for it to be to have been exaggerated. Um, the witness, some of the witness statements that were read out in court were quite haunting um, and moving to read. Um, and I guess the only other thing I would add is that. Again, I wanted to give everybody an opportunity to speak, and I did manage to find the names and contact details of both victims from the two cases um, online. And I sort of wrestled with the idea of should I approach them or not. And in the end, I sent so the, the, the boy who was involved in the car accident and the um, lady in Las Vegas. Um, unless the details I received were wrong, I did write to both of them, basically saying that this project was happening um, and I was aware that it was very sensitive, but if there was anything that they wanted to be said, um, then they could reply to me. I heard, I heard nothing from either person, but I did think it was important. You know, these are, these are real human lives that were left quite damaged from, from all accounts. I wanted to give them at least the opportunity to have a say, whether, whether that letter ever, the letters ever reached them or not, I don't know for certain because I never received a reply, but I did think it was important to, to at least try to reach out. Yeah, no, no. Obviously, that would have been a, a completely different perspective, and and would of course added a different element to the to the book as a whole. Uh, but I think, like we've we've both agreed, like from you doing the book, us doing the pod, that there's definitely still a twist in the tale yet. And I think, like with the book that you put together, it gives an excellent account of of his life uh, in different in different chunks and different elements of his life and different incidents inside and outside of the ring. Um, but obviously we kind of left feeling like there is so much more left with with him, whether he'll get back in the ring again. Um, do, do we think he's going to get back in the ring again? Or do we think he's just going to stay in Nigeria? Will he ever get a visa to come back to America? There's, there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions that kind of leave me... Uh, quite quite strangely i want more i want to know more i want to i want to yeah. hear more and, and i think that's kind of what the book kind of leaves you walking away feeling and that's kind of how i felt as soon as i finished recording the episode that we did was like actually i want to know more now i want to know what what he's up to what is he doing is he going to get back in the ring again um 
what do you what do you think ultimately like do you think you'll get back in the ring again do you think you'll get a visa for america um if if there's an opportunity to tell more of a story if if any other incidents occur will you be the first on the scene to want to get that story um well i mean in terms of does i box again i don't think he boxes in america i can't see i'm not an expert on like visa regulations and so on but I can't imagine that he'd be given a visa to go back to the States. Um, I could well see him having some sort of contest in, in Nigeria or some sort of neighboring territory. Um, I almost think it's inevitable if he, you know, that, he, that he will have another fight of some description. Um, as for would I be first on the scene? Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's been quite a dark place, as sort of Tim Graham said when I asked him to sort of um, speak to me about his own experiences with like, it, it's, it's it's a sort of quite a dark story that's lived with me for sort of four or five years now. And I'm sort of a bit glad to have emerged from it. Um, I'm slightly nervous if Ike ever reads the book, I've got to be honest. Um, uh, I, I do check behind the door before I go to bed just to, just to make sure he hasn't, he hasn't got his way over to the UK. Um, although my publisher did say when he'd read it, he did say that, you know, I think it's a fair book. And I think he said, Oh, I think one compliment I can pay is I don't think Ike would hate it. So I think there's enough sort of in there positive about him, particularly his boxing ability. And, and like I say, I, I like to think it's as even handed as possible, but yeah, like you, I mean, you know, I'm always going to have an interest. I still, I still scan online pretty much every day the you know, the news feeds or, Facebook posts or whatever it might be to, to see if anything's happening or anything has changed. So yeah, I, I'm very intrigued. And I, you know what, I would love there to be, you know, this is a man who, you know, he has served his punishment. Um, the crime he was convicted of, you know, a terrible crime, but many people have served very much lesser sentences for, for that crime than he has, you know, he's been in prison for the best part of 20 years. Um, so I think he served his time. And I, I would like to think that, there's a chance for redemption of some sort, you know, maybe, maybe he could become a trainer, you know, the, the Nigerian Curtis Cox, you know, it would be great to see him able to contribute something back to the sport um, in, in a positive way. And, and in a way, there's something quite fitting, you know, my book begins with his father in Nigeria, who was this sort of mythic folk hero, um, this sort of admired strong man who would, you know, pull cars and lift people up with his hair and, bags of cement piled in on his body and so on. And in a way, there's something appropriate that, that it looks like the final chapter of Ike's story will be back in his homeland, back in Nigeria. Um, and I like to think I'm an optimist and I, I would love there to be some sort of a happy ending, maybe, you know, a, a successful comeback fight and then he opens a gym somewhere and, and you know, maybe the next Ike Bayabuchi will come through those doors and, and will have even more success than Ike did with Ike, with Ike training him. Or maybe I'm just being very sentimental there when I when I lay that sort of vision out there. But time will tell. And yeah, I can't wait to find out. Um, I'm always going to be interested. Yeah, I, I, that's kind of how I feel about it. I feel like I want it, I want him to get that redemption. Like we both agree, the crimes were terrible. As he served his punishment, absolutely, he's, he served his punishment. You like people do worse crimes and get less punishment for it. So it's kind of like it's based on the justice system. He's definitely served his time for what he's done, but it doesn't mean that you know uh, we we condone what he's done. But we want him to come out of it the other side, which is kind of how I felt walking away from doing that episode. Uh, but going back to the book, then just finish up with with this 
the the book itself, President of Pandemonium, obviously has been published by Hamilcar Noir. They've done some absolutely brilliant books. They've obviously the Ghost uh, of Tapia. They've done Berserk. They've done the uh, the Shot in a Brothel, the Oscar Bonavina. But there's there's many books that they've done in terms of where the people can buy this book uh, for, for for wanting to read it, wanting to go more in detail with it. Uh, is are there certain outlets that they can do this on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously. Um, if you want to support Jeff Bezos and, and the multinationals, you can go via Amazon. Um, but the best place you could possibly go is the Hamilcar website itself, which contains a portal to other places where you could buy it, which will more benefit Hamilcar, such as their own shop, uh, rival boxing gears, websites across the world, Stop the Book. They are a boxing equipment manufacturer who partner up with Hamilcar. So obviously... I want everybody to buy the book, and if it has to be on Amazon, so be it. But it would be great if people could support, you know, the, the independent publisher that Hamilcar are on. They're, they do such a great job, you know. Tris Dixon's Damage, which you mentioned earlier, uh, they've just got onto the William Hill Sports Book of the Year shortlist, which is an amazing achievement. It's a brilliant book. And, you know, we want to see more books like that and like the, the Hamilcar Noir series. You know, we want them to go from strength to strength. So if people could support them, they're an independent publisher. They're doing great work. You know, I, I urge people to support them. And if, and if they're not buying my book, at least buy some of their other books as well, because I, I want to see them go from strength to strength. So they're a great bunch of guys over there in Boston. No, very well said. Very well said. I think a lot of people that are boxing fans uh, have been have been really enjoying this series. Been enjoying what Hamilcar have been doing, and obviously, if people can buy from them independently, it is much better because the proceeds go a lot more to them than they do to Amazon, of course. But like you say, obviously, if if people want to get the book and they have Amazon, they want to get it through there. Of course, do it through there. One thing I've I've not really mentioned throughout the course of of this episode is more about obviously what you've been doing over the past twenty years, and not aside from Mike, you've obviously been involved in a lot of the projects you've wrote for various uh, different outlets over the years uh, and and obviously you've got a lot of stuff that you're still involved in at the moment are there any upcoming projects that we we should be keeping an eye out for yeah so i mean always keep an eye out on boxing social i write regularly sort of seven or eight articles a month for them um if anyone's interested in the sort of in a much more positive feel-good boxing story my first book was uh, Richmond Unchained, which is still available, which is the story of a man who went from slavery to high society in the UK as a famous bare-knuckle boxer in the Georgian era. So that's a very, that was a very different project. Um, my next book is actually nothing to do with boxing. It's actually to do with snooker, but I'm always going to be keeping a toe in boxing through Boxing Social. Um, so, yeah, that's the best place to, to see my work. So, And, again, Boxing Social, like the Hamilcar guys, it's a great bunch of guys, a sort of an independent outlet who are out there you know, doing great work through text, video, uh, podcasts, and all sorts of things as well. So, yeah, check out Boxing Social if you guys don't know it already. And finally, for the people that want to follow you, they want to follow your work directly, where can they find you on social media to do so? Yeah, so my handle on Twitter is Boxiana Journal. That's B-O-X-I-A-N-A-J-O-U-R-N-A-L. Bit convoluted. And that's my little nod to the the classic, the first ever boxing journalism, Pierce Egan's Boxiana back in the bare knuckle days, which all fits in with my Bill Richmond uh, project. So, so yeah, always welcome followers and interactions with, you know, with real boxing fans. Um, and if anyone's ever got any questions about Ike or anything at all, you know, drop me, I think my DMs are always open. So if anyone's interested, you know, yeah, just get in touch. It'd be great to hear from people. 
Well, that's everything. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for putting uh, a really, really fantastic book out there in into the mind of, obviously, Ike Bayabuchi, the president of Pandemonium. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show to get more of an insight about the book, how the book came about, and, of course, about Ike and your conversations with Ike. So thank you very much for coming on uh, The Darker Side of Boxing. Thank you so much for the time you've spent putting the book together. Really appreciate it, and uh, thank you so much. Cheers, Sean. Take care, mate. Network.